Safety experts from the World Health Organization begin a review into the Oxford-AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine as a growing number of European countries halt its use. US President Joe Biden is in Pennsylvania today to promote the landmark achievement of his presidency so far, the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 stimulus package. And how did an ornate mosaic fragment of Roman flooring from one of Caligula's floating palaces end up as a coffee table? in New York City. Monocle's editors are here to discuss those stories today here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the Late Edition here on Monocle 24. It is Tuesday the 16th of March and I'm Thomas Lewis and joining us today are Monocle 24's Daniel Bates who's in London for us and Monocle's Europe editor at large Ed Stocker who's in Milan. Ed, Daniel, great to have you both with us on the programme today and Ed to begin with you the part of Italy you're in is now back in lockdown. How are you how are you all faring there? It's not so bad. It, it came in on Monday, so it came in yesterday. So it's all uh, still quite new. Uh, it's been, you know, a bit of a seesaw of of changing colours here in Italy. Uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, I was able to go out for uh, for lunch, which I I, I regaled you with uh, on this show. Um, so things have changed a little. You can't meet up with people inside anymore. Basically, bars and restaurants and shops have all shut down again. Um, but, you know, on the plus side, a couple of things. One, you can still get a takeaway cappuccino and a croissant in the morning, which frankly makes me happy. Uh, and secondly, uh, the weather is beautiful and spring-like and it's been fairly warm and sunny and blue skies recently. So that's good. And then, you know, the government is going to allow, uh, although limited numbers, I think you're allowed to meet up with two other people from one household. But over Easter, uh, we'll be allowed to sort of mix in small numbers. So I still get a bit of some roast lamb in uh, over Easter. You'll be pleased to hear. Glad to hear it, Ed. Some bright spots on the horizon. And Daniel, how about you? How's the week shaping up for you in London so far? I feel I need to do a weather forecast here as ever. <laughs> please, uh, on please, our, uh, Daniel. Tuesday, <laughs> Tuesday conversation. Uh, a little bit grey out there. And we're looking... At- for some rain this week, Tomas. I mean, it look, it looking like we're going to get some rain. I'm not looking for it personally. But in any case, a good start to the week. Very busy uh, on the globalist. Lots of news happening. Obviously, we've been following elections, uh, regional elections in Germany. Tomorrow, we're going to look at Dutch elections and uh, the very worrying situation in Myanmar. Also something we're watching closely uh, this week. So very busy on the news front and, uh, of course, always working away on the entrepreneur's uh, some very exciting uh, interviews uh, I'm looking forward to sharing with uh, people soon. I won't give everything away just yet, Tomas. So I'll have to tune in, but uh, it's been it's been busy and always good to be busy. Well, we're on the edge of our seats, Daniel. Look forward to giving those interviews a listen when they air. Daniel Bache and Ed Stocker, great to have you both with us on a Tuesday here on The Late Edition. Well, we begin today's programme with the review of the Oxford-AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine that's taking place today by safety experts from the World Health Organisation and from the EU itself. It follows the decision by a number of European countries to suspend use of the vaccine temporarily due to safety concerns. Well, on today's edition of The Globalist, Monocle's science and health correspondent Dr Chris Smith explained why the AstraZeneca vaccine has become a cause of concern for some governments in Europe. They're saying this is because of an association with blood clots. 
But the numbers of people who've been vaccinated and who have had blood clots amounts to about 37 across the UK and the entire EU in the time that the AZ vaccine has been being rolled out. Now, you could say, well, 37, that sounds like a lot. But actually, if you then say, well, how many people on average have a blood clot in a country like the UK in a year? It's about one person in a thousand. So if you then do the maths and say, well, how many would we expect to have had out of 17 million AstraZeneca vaccine doses administered? Out of that number of people, how many blood clots would we expect to see just by chance? It's several hundred so therefore, the number of people with a blood clot who've had a vaccine is a fraction of the number you would even expect to see by chance. So there doesn't seem to be this association. So we are really confused as to why they're going down this road. And it looks like just more fractiousness. It looks like more bad publicity where the EU have already been down the path of potentially trashing the image of this vaccine. They don't have a strong track record in this area, which, you know, it's a real worry because what it's doing is, is reinforcing vaccine hesitancy. But not just in the EU, in countries beyond the EU. And at the moment, we have a pandemic on our hands. We're trying to control it. And these vaccines offer an excellent way to do that. Dr Chris Smith there, Monocle's science and health correspondent, speaking to us on The Globalist today. Um, Ed, how deeply do you think these moves by several European countries to halt their use of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, how far do you think that will add to the idea of vaccine scepticism that Dr Chris Smith mentioned there, not just in the EU, but as he said, in other countries around the world too? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And those figures, I saw one today in La Repubblica here in Italy saying 30 cases of 5 million uh, doses in the EU. Obviously, there's been a lot more uh, uh, vaccinations administered in the UK. Uh, The numbers are tiny. And so it is perplexing that this is happening. Uh, And although a lot of the countries that, that are suspended have, like you mentioned, been European, you know, we've also seen that spread to places like Thailand, don't forget South Africa in February uh, suspended as well. So it's had ripple on effects. And even here in Italy, in Milan, I've talked to one or two people in the last few days. And, you know, they they're slightly wary of AstraZeneca, of having an AstraZeneca vaccine. And so I think it's worrying that it will make people feel like that. And I just think that there needs to be better information out there because at the end of the day, like Chris was saying, you know, we need these vaccines. We need people to be taking them. We need uh, the EU uh, to be surging ahead. And it's been very slow on vaccination. And so it seems odd that there are supplies of AstraZeneca out there in the European Union. Don't forget just recently... A shipment was halted by Italy uh, that was headed to Australia uh, because they argued that AstraZeneca hadn't met its contractual obligations to the 27-member bloc and therefore they were going to keep the shipment and uh, basically share it out amongst the 27 nations to ensure they have their supply. And then we have this suspension. Now, a couple of things are happening. One is that today uh, the head of the European uh, Medicines Association, Emma, EM at the EMA, said uh, she's called Emma Cook. She said today that basically there was no evidence of this link and that the benefits of the vaccine far outweigh 
any collateral sort of side effects. Uh, this is a preliminary announcement they made and the full announcement, uh, the assessment is ongoing, will be made on Thursday. But based on what they've been saying today, it seems likely that uh, they'll give the go-ahead for AstraZeneca to uh, be used once more uh, in the European Union and you would hope that these countries that have suspended the use will start again. But at the same time, you've also got the EU deciding tactically and, and, and Chris alluded to some of the reasons, but it's not entirely clear. Uh, we've seen the EU is banking more on, on the Pfizer vaccine. Just just recently, they reached an agreement for a further 10 million uh, doses of that vaccine. And that will take the total for the second trimester to over 200 uh, million vaccines of that BioNTech uh, Pfizer jab. So it seems to be a clear strategy anyway uh, to, to move or, or push more in the direction of Pfizer. But as we said before, you know, look at the numbers. Uh, the EU has been very slow on vaccination. Uh, the new... Uh, uh, leader here in Italy, Mario Draghi, has promised that he will up the speed of vaccinations. And you'd think that in order to do that, he's going to need all the pharmaceutical companies on board. And that includes, Tom, AstraZeneca. And Daniel, Ed mentioned there the idea of a sort of broader strategy. Where a strategy doesn't seem to be particularly clear is that now that these halts of the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine have come um, at a time when vaccine rollouts, as Ed alluded to there as well, in those places have not gone particularly smoothly or swiftly, do we have a sense if those governments that have temporarily suspended the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine are now stepping up efforts to to fill the void created by the absence of that particular vaccine? Or will these rollouts, do you think, inevitably lag further now as a result of this temporary delay? In the short term, Tomas, I think the answer is there will be some delays. We've seen quite a few uh, governments uh, and uh, vaccine manufacturers, big drug companies talking about what they'll do to ramp up production, uh, which is obviously very important for some of the other vaccines. But that is uh, mostly about upgrading facilities for years uh, down the line when, you know, perhaps there is another pandemic or or for the production of, of medicines uh, more quickly, so we're not in the same situation again. And, and there isn't a whole lot of talk about how we actually fill the void short term. And that is what makes this AstraZeneca uh, dilemma, I think, uh, so interesting. You know, the only sort of coordination we're seeing across the European Union is to suspend use uh, of this particular vaccine, which it's it's good to see that there is now an investigation and i think that needs to happen because the vaccine hesitancy is only going to continue to grow if 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 governments are outright suspending its use instead of backing it uh, where we know uh it has been approved and 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 the the evidence is is very slim very anecdotal at this point on on the drawbacks uh you know interesting to look also uh, at a country like Canada, I spent a good part of last weekend trying to help my parents and in-laws navigate the, the the new booking system that was rolled out in Alberta. 
um, which was actually quite good. My uh, uncle is a tech entrepreneur and, and was talking to me about just about how good the interface for that was. Uh, but the the issue is you can you can book your vaccination quite easily now but they have no supplies and the supply that they are able to get is AstraZeneca and the hesitancy there, even though people are very vocal uh, in criticizing uh, the federal government and Trudeau's government in Ottawa about the slow uh, rollout of vaccines, all of that has to do with production delays, delays at factories in Belgium, not anything that the Canadian government can control. But because of this hesitancy in countries all around the world, you have people that are reluctant to, to book. And I found it quite striking, Tomas, that on Saturday night, uh, on Hockey Night in Canada, which is sort of, uh, you know, match of the day for Canada, you know, the nationwide broadcast of the, the biggest hockey games of the weekend, Ron McLean, who is the longtime anchor, who's been anchoring that show my entire life, used his segment between intermissions to back AstraZeneca and talk about how he was going to get it and that it was safe. And, you know, things like that will go a long way. Celebrities uh, posting the uh, Dolly Parton style, uh, talking about getting the vaccine. But we need to see that from from governments and from people actually putting their faith in this. And I think uh, hopefully that's something we'll see in the days ahead. Well, next here on the late edition, US President Joe Biden travelled to Pennsylvania today, his first stop on a nationwide tour to tout the landmark achievement of his presidency so far, the passing of the $1.9 trillion economic stimulus package, which he signed into law at the Oval Office last Thursday. Well, on today's edition of The Briefing, we spoke to Suzanne Lynch. She's the Washington correspondent for the Irish Times newspaper, and she explained the significance of Biden's visit today. Joe Biden, particularly during the campaign, was criticised uh, for staying close to home. This was obviously during the COVID pandemic at the height of, of that. Um, and that was part of his kind of branding as a responsible leader, how he would not be out meeting with people. Uh, but this week, we are going to see him hitting the road, as they say. Today, he's going uh, to Chester, uh, Pennsylvania. He's going to be meeting with small business there. On Friday, he's going along with Kamala Harris to Georgia, uh, a hugely important state that uh, really delivered control of the Senate to Democrats uh, in this election cycle. Um, and Kamala Harris herself has been uh, out and about. She was in Las Vegas yesterday. She's due, due to go to Colorado today, again, meeting with uh, sp- small businesses uh, and recipients of what, as they see it, you know, this, this huge uh, economic rescue plan that was signed into law last week. Suzanne Lynch there speaking to us on today's edition of The Briefing. Um, Ed, we're told that part of the reason for this big, grand publicity tour around the passing of the stimulus in the US is to avoid what's perceived to have befallen President Barack Obama back in 2009. He, of course, then secured his own vast stimulus package in the wake of the global financial crisis. But with hindsight, I suppose, was deemed not to have done enough to promote it at the time to claim that achievement as his own. To others a decade ago, it would have felt unthinkable, I suppose, to politicise a presidential response to a national emergency in this way, but not so in the current moment, it seems. Do you think this tour that Joe Biden, Vice President Harris and other senior figures within the Biden administration are now undertaking sort of marks a kind of permanent campaign mode that US politicians now feel that they have to operate under? 
Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And I think there's so many things to unpick from this. Yeah, I mean, Obama passed $787 billion. This is $1.9 trillion. It is an epic amount of money. And it's kind of been interesting because there's been talk uh, about whether both Obama did enough to promote uh, that stimulus package, like you said, and also whether that stimulus package went far enough and whether it uh, was uh, ambitious enough and and whether it placated uh, the Republicans to a certain extent. What's certainly true is I think it's really impossible to put these two things side by side and compare them because, like you alluded to, Thomas, I think times have changed so much. And first of all, uh, we're talking post-Donald Trump. And I think, yes, to a certain extent, Donald Trump did rewrite the rules of the game. That's not to say that I think the Democrats are playing Donald Trump's game, but I think they're aware of this idea of uh, permanent campaigning. Uh, they, they're aware that it was successful for him. Don't forget that Donald Trump, I think it was like a day after uh, being sworn in as president, he he announced his sort of campaign for re-election. He was permanently campaigning. He held rallies all the time. This isn't quite the same, but I think they are, uh, and when I say they, I'm talking about Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, they are aware of uh, of getting uh, out there and, and selling this. Now, Kamala Harris says it's not a sell. She says she just want to make sure that people are aware of what is uh, due them and what their rights are. And this is being billed as the help is here tour. Harris in Las Vegas was talking about how it's the job of government uh, to be there when you need a helping hand. This is so different, really, to that almost anti-government approach of Donald Trump. So this is trying to show, really, I think, that leadership is good and and subtly, in a way, or, or sometimes not so subtly, contrasting that with what is deemed as a total lack of leadership from Donald Trump. The fact that this massive uh, stimulus package is obviously uh, funding testing and vaccine distribution. Uh, There's stimulus money uh, to most US taxpayers. The federal government is propping up unemployment. There's money for states, local and tribal authorities, money for schools. There's a lot there and they want to make sure that the Republicans cannot seize the narrative that they explain to people uh, what's in this bill and how it's there to help people. Kamala Harris even said our babies are hungry, saying that there are people without jobs who are struggling uh, to, to pay for food bills and this is meant to help them. Going back to Obama briefly, I think they're also wary of the fact that, you know, Obama seemed to be cruising to a certain extent. He had a very progressive agenda that he wanted to get across. And what happened in 2010 uh, was a big upset, uh, uh, the the biggest sort of midterm loss for 70 odd years. Uh, The Democratic Party got absolutely decimated in the House of Representatives in particular. And uh, his Obama's agenda was was severely impeded by that. He had strong uh, hopes of of passing progressive environmental legislation and wasn't able to do that because he found himself blocked uh, in terms of legislation. And so 
I think the Democrats don't want to get complacent. They want to make sure that come 2022 midterms, uh, they, uh, you know, hold on to both the Senate and the House of Representatives, which, of course, they now control. Interesting, in that clip, Georgia was mentioned, where, of course, uh, the president and vice president will be on Friday. Uh, It was Georgia that delivered the Senate victory. And it's also a difference of a seat between the Republicans and the Democrats. So come the midterms, it would not take very much one seat, in fact, for the Senate to be flipped. So I think Democrats are aware of the paper-thin margin there. They want to really make sure that they hold control in the midterms, and perhaps this is already part of that. And Daniel, just briefly, are we seeing other governments doing similar things to this sort of grand national tour that uh, Joe Biden's administration is undertaking at the moment to ensure that the public knows that uh, the achievements, the, the work that's been done by them during the pandemic to try and stem the worst effects of it, that those achievements are in fact theirs, particularly Ed talked about the midterm elections in the US, but in other places where elections aren't in the two distant future as well. Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, you you know, in the US, it's the perpetual election cycle. In other countries, it's the, you know, jumping at every chance to have a photo op. And Boris Johnson, of course, is is very good at that and and, uh, has, uh, in recent days, uh, or weeks at least, has been uh, seen around around the UK, very famously, of course, uh, in Scotland, which didn't go down uh, too well. Uh, but we also start are starting to see Justin Trudeau in Canada out uh, a lot more. Of course, it's been much trickier for him because... In, in in more recent months, he's he's been blamed quite a lot for the slow vaccine rollout there, as we as we talked about earlier in the show. And it was interesting uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was uh, some whispers about whether he might actually call an early election only a year after uh, uh, losing his majority in parliament to see if he could win it back because his popularity numbers were so high uh, well before the vaccine conversation we were just talking about just handling the, the pandemic. He was seen to have been doing that uh, quite well. So you see him out quite uh, quite a bit and more often now that uh, the vaccines are, are, are starting to be ruled out. But it's it's a really tough time for, for I think, politicians to, to be out uh, campaigning on on uh, on successes but uh, I think we'll start to see uh, more of it and uh, especially here in the UK as, as things start to to open up again well you can read more about Joe Biden's publicity push for his COVID-19 stimulus package in today's edition of the Monocle Minute just head to monocle.com forward slash minute well finally here on today's program a new addition to the permanent collection of a museum in Rome has been unveiled it's a restored fragment of intricate mosaic flooring that was crafted in the first century for one of two ornate floating palaces built for the Emperor Caligula The fragment was recovered in 1895, only to go missing, before turning up in the living room of a Manhattan art dealer, by which time it had been transformed into something more humble entirely, a coffee table. Daniel, you spotted this story, and it's a pretty amazing tale, isn't it? 
I absolutely love this story. I think it's 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 just brilliant. One of those ones you, you definitely want to read through when you, you see it in the newspaper. Uh, but just to think about an artifact that old ending up in in an antique shop, I was thinking about the uh, the show The Man in the High Castle with the with the, the memorabilia shop and the antiques uh, dealer and, and and what was there and and you know I always loved that idea of of finding a hidden gem and and, and I lived in. In, in Paris for a while and, and thinking of uh, walking along the banks of the Seine and, and popping into a, a shop or, or checking out one of the book dealers and finding some lost gem. I think it's a, a romantic idea many of us have. But the thing I really loved is the the, the detail of this. And I, I really wonder how much the, the, the antique uh, antiques dealer knew about about this table obviously it was it was pulled after uh, almost 2000 years from the bottom of the sea and had some modern pieces put into it to to put it back together to make it a whole tile mosaic but uh, it, it it's now on display with with rings from glasses they didn't even use coasters on it which i find <laughs> unbelievable i i just uh, imagine what i would have in my house and and how i would treat it i'm terrible with with taking care of things, Tomas, but uh, I don't think I'd be putting my coffee cup on on the old tile mosaic uh, uh, table in my living room. And Ed, given that you are in Italy, I'm not sure, having read this story, whether you've been scuttling around the Stocker residence, checking the provenance of the coffee tables uh, dotted around your living quarters. Mm -hmm. But to sort of bring all of this down to a slightly uh, sort of more humble level, I guess, there is, you know, not all of us, of course, can have fragments of Roman floating palaces in our homes after all. But there is still a magic, isn't there, as Daniel alluded to there, to having an object that does have a story of some kind to tell never mind how grand or small that story is uh absolutely i mean first of all i, I saw the story on the uh the 8 p.m news on on Rai, uh yesterday and they were sort of very proud of it and we saw uh some nice uh, reproductions of what the floating palace would look like a bizarre story i you you're right i can't quite claim uh to have anything of that value in my house but i am a collector of things, and you may be the same, Tomos, because I know you've travelled all around North America as well, but I've collected all sorts of things from sort of sheet music from Buenos Aires in Argentina, where I used to live, which one day I'll get framed, um, to sort of uh, ceramics from Mexico. None none of it's worth that much, but it's a a sort of reminder of places I've been. And and when I moved from New York uh, to here in Milan last year I paid to get all this stuff shipped even though in terms of value it didn't really have anything but in terms of sentimental value it was worth every penny paying the slightly astronomical shipping fees to bring it here with me uh, in Italy because it is a reminder of, of all those experience and things and sort of looking around your house and seeing those things and being reminded of them even though they're not a Roman mosaic it makes you feel good. 
It does indeed make you feel good. And Ed Stocker and Daniel Bates, our very own historical artefacts, not just full of sentimental value. Wow. Thank you wow, very wow, much wow. to the two of you for being with us on the programme today. That is all we have time for for today's edition of The Late Edition. Our studio manager today in London was Sam Impey. A big thanks to her, as always, too. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But in the meantime, do be sure to listen out for the brand new episode of Monocle on Design which premiered here on Monocle 24 a short while ago. I'm Thomas Lewis. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.